Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Well, hello, everybody. Good afternoon. And um, we're coming to you today, of course, from Gadigal country, and we acknowledge the elders and all Indigenous people who may be with us today. Uh, which is particularly appropriate given the subject matter of our talk today, which is Don Watson's book, The Passion of Private White. Don Watson, welcome to the Sydney Writers Festival. Thank you, Laura. This is um, perhaps a, a, a particularly appropriate book for the times, um, but it probably wouldn't matter if it wasn't the times where we're having this debate about the voice and recognition, um, because it's it's a multifaceted story, um, not just about one Indigenous community, but a very good friend of yours and about Vietnam vets. And somehow it all really works very well, but it's not like a lot of Indigenous issues it's, um, themselves, it's not an issue that you can just go, oh, here's a nice clean line through it all. It's all pretty straightforward. Um, it's, it's very complex and as a result, quite confronting, I think. Um, and confronting to people who've never been in a remote community about the realities of life there on a whole range of fronts. But let's just um, start by getting you to tell us about Neville. Right. Well, I've been trying to think since the since I started writing the book, I've been trying to work out what it's about. And I still haven't quite figured it. But it's... um, The simplest way of saying it is it it really is the story of my old friend, Neville White. He was... um, How do I do this quickly? Do it slowly. (laughs) The interesting thing about Neville is that he he was the son of a boxer, um, a famous boxer called Kid Young, real name Leo White, who was Australian featherweight champion in the late 30s and into the early 40s. And so Neville grew up in, basically, the house was at the front and the gym was at the back. And in the, out the back, Kid Young trained boxers, most of them Aboriginal, um, recruited um, from North Queensland, including Palm Island. One of them was the famous George Bracken, And this is my first connection with Neville, I suppose, was that I used to listen to 3DB on a Friday night in in Gippsland, listening to George Bracken fighting Max Carlos. And George, they seemed to do it every second Friday night. Um, But George was Australian lightweight champion, then Max would win it, and then George would win it. And George is my hero. So when I met Neville in 1968, March 1968, when he said he was Kid Young's son, I was enraptured, you know, this was extraordinary. And then I met Kid Young, this little man with red hair and gleam in his eye, who was then going out with the barrel girl from in Melbourne tonight. <laughs> He'd had a midlife crisis. <laughs> He'd taken off with the glamorous Onnie Vandenbosch. <laughs> and um, anyway, Neville in December of 1968 was just three months back even less than three months back from Vietnam. Um, He'd been conscripted under that system, which those of us with grey hair will remember, um, was a lottery. Your name was pulled out of a barrel 
usually by a bristly old RSL character. Um, uh, not your name, your, your birth date. Neville's had been pulled out. He was three years older than me. Um, his had been pulled out. Mine was not pulled out. If I'd been born on March the 7th, I would have been conscripted. I was born on March the 6th, so I wasn't. Um, and I might say now that I was opposed to this form of conscription at the time, though not necessarily to conscription itself. I'm still not entirely opposed to conscription, um, but of a different kind. Um, but the, that the lottery system seems to me to be a travesty, and I find it absolutely extraordinary that people's lives were taken in this way. Um, and it, it occurred to me in writing the book that at the time this was being almost the basis, you know, part of the basis for political careers, including those of Andrew Peacock and John Howard, was supporting this and the war in Vietnam, both of whom were, could have rolled up to the army any time they like and enrolled as regulars, um, but they didn't do it. So Neville was conscripted, went to... Um, trained with these men who remain his dearest friends, um, opposed the war and refused to go to Vietnam initially on moral grounds, not, not, not as a pacifist by any means. He was far from a pacifist. He was quite intimidating, really, and he always was always punching you or hitting you in one way or another. You flinched when you saw him coming. Um, but he, he opposed it. He, he thought the war was wrong, wrong-headed and wrong. And he spent three weeks, um, while his comrades flew off to the war, he spent three weeks in an army hospital in Sydney. Um, testing, because he, was a, he, had a, he had a diploma of textile chemistry, so they put him into a hospital to look at urine samples for traces of gonorrhea. Which reminded me of Gough Whitlam saying once that they told him when he joined the Air Force, Whitlam, you've got, um, you've got Latin, you can be a navigator. <laughs> uh, it was much the same sort of thing. Anyway, after three weeks, he said, um, he decided he had to go. He felt that um, if anything happened to these men with whom he'd bonded very closely, if they were killed, wounded, damaged in one way or another, he would never be able to forgive himself for squibbing it, as it were. So he went and they put him in the medical corps. He insisted on being infantry and going with them. And to leap, to make a huge leap, uh, the, 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 that, that bit of serendipity that, uh, that he, they thought he was in the medical corps, he was actually in the infantry is what compounded the engagement. It's a weird use of the word engagement, but that's what the army calls it, with the Viet Cong in one um, firefight. That confusion had alarming effects on his psyche later. They all um, of that platoon that I've met and that remain close to him were later diagnosed with PTSD, and Neville was too. So that's Neville. He went to La Trobe. He, they let him in even though he hadn't matriculated. So uh, you, you, met, you met him at La Trobe? I met him at La Trobe mm. in its second year. I'd been there in the first year. He arrived in the second. He, um, 
It's funny, actually, I was talking to Bill Kelty the other day. He was all there, there in the first year. He also used to listen to 3DB in the boxing on Friday nights. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, Neville won the university medal, went off, became a geneticist, went off to um, Northern Territory to write his, um, his honours thesis. Then he... he um, wanted to do his PhD, mainly on, on, on genetic difference. And this led him into all sorts of fields. I mean, it meant that he, he, in the long run, he became a, an anthropologist, an ethnographer, and so on. And, but he was told by this man on Elko Island called David Boromura, um, a kind of a, a, an extraordinarily influential statesman of the Yungal people, that if he wanted to work with people who had most, who lived the traditional life and had most recently um, settled into a homeland, he needed to go to this place called Doinji. In remote northeast Arnhem Land, they're Yungal people, but they're not coastal people, they're inland people, they live in the tropical savannah, um, a long way from anywhere. And there were two main clans, the Gurutangu and the Wagalak, and their land stretched from the bottom of the Arafura Swamp, if you can imagine that right-hand corner of that box called Arnhem Land, stretching down to the Walker River, which then runs into the Gulf of Carpentaria. So, so if I can interrupt just for a moment, just to sort of pause and talk about that community, which you're mm. sort of doing, but just to highlight, um, there are all sorts of different Indigenous communities in remote locations around Australia, but what was really interesting about this one was that it essentially remained um, mob on country. Yep. Um, there had not been huge disruption uh, of people leaving for the missions or children being stolen. When Neville first encountered them, they were still eating a lot of bush tucker, living a reasonably um, traditional life, though they had started to settle in this one place. Yeah. That made it that made it particularly interesting for him. Yeah, it did. There were, the homeland movement was late 1960s when people decided mainly to keep the miners at bay um, and also because the hub towns were places of <coughs> where it was squabbling and fighting and things were very difficult and so they decided to go back to the country, form homelands. And that's another subject, you know, to whether they work or whether they don't. Um, but Doenji was... These two groups were interesting because they'd they'd resisted fiercely the arrival of the um, pastoralists in the in the from about the eighteen eighties to the nineteen twenties and thirties. They'd fought a war with them. Um, they'd been shot by them. Um, a, a, an unbelievably brutal war. They'd resisted them where other clans had gone into the cattle stations, they refused. The missions had come. They didn't give their kids over to the missions. Um, they would use the missions again to get sugar and tobacco, two incredibly destructive influences about which whole books could be written in the history of colonialism. Um, but, and they were, by the 1960s, they were fighting off the miners. So these two groups were leading wholly traditional lives with the except that they would go to the missions and get tobacco and food. And um, that was really the only thing. So 
what he encounters a year, about a year after the, they established their place at Doenji, was that you were seeing people who had lived these lives as hunter-gatherers with an entirely different cosmology, now adjusting to sedentary life. They continued to hunt and gather. They continued the, What they wanted was to keep their ceremonial life, their songs alive, and their land alive. And what's involved in, the, in this process is cutting off the spiritual life from the material life, either rapidly or quickly. Because once you know, the ceremonial life depends on knowledge of the country, intimate knowledge of the country and the creatures on it and how it works and the whole thing. And increasingly, that becomes more abstract. So you're singing, hello? You're singing the songs about abstract places if you don't actually walk the places every day. The other thing that happens at this point and I'm only speaking about Duenji, I can't speak for the other homelands. The other thing, among many other things that happen, is that these two mobs, they were intermarrying clans. Duenji was owned, the owners of the land were Rotangu, the managers of the land, they have managerial status, so they're Wagalak, and they marry, they, they live sort of together but apart. That when they're walking the land, they have what the anthropologists call fission and fusion, which is that they were they'll hang out together until there's a squabble or there's a sense of something going wrong and then they'll break off and go somewhere else. Nick Peterson, who was up there before Neville for 18 months or so, said to, said to me recently, he said, you know, they, they weren't so much nomads, they just wandered about, you know. <laughs> they just went here and there and they, they would break off. They don't like it at the moment, we go away. So if you're living a sedentary life, it's very hard to contain those things in the way that you once did through thousands of years. So... Uh, Neville turns up with his anthropological, genetic, all sorts of different interests which are developing because his sort of intellectual academic life is sort of developing at the time it sort of it seems, to, um, seems to be. Um, but, of course, his relationship with that community also develops over time. Tell us a little bit about how, what, how, what did he think he was doing when he first went there yeah. and how did that change? Well, it's a, it's a, he, he flew in with a missionary, the, the, the famous um, Shep, Harold Shepherdson, who'd been there for 50 years, flying around in a plane he made himself and taught himself to fly. An extraordinary man and his wife, no less extraordinary. And he was deposited there um, and he um, got out and had just walked into these people saying, I am connected through this person in Yakala and so on. And they immediately put him to work, he said. Um, he, he went there as an anthropologist, as a participant observer, um, which is the traditional, well, the way since Malinowski of, of, that anthropologists are meant to work. So you're part of the community, but you only as much a part as they wish you to be. And you stay outside it, but you observe and you take notes and you take photographs or everything that they're prepared to let you do, you do. They give him... They were happy to hand over the knowledge, and I think that was true of that whole generation of anthropologists, because the old men and women knew that the knowledge was going to fade. One old man said to Betty Meehan, up on Anborough country, you know, get it down quick. Write it down, because it's going to fade. Um, so Neville became great friends with these old men, um, some of whom had known um, Donald Thompson back in the 1930s, met him when they were still wandering in the bush. Thompson wrote about 
these people. He said beautifully, he said, you know, that he, they would appear from the bushes, he was walking through it. And he said, you know, how much it pained him to think of their passing because they had been doing it for so long. You know, it's like, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, in fact, I would love people to read the book with that in mind, that this is a whole other world um, and, a way, and a whole other way of seeing the world with most extraordinary intimate knowledge of the world contained in song, most of it. So he arrives there and um, we were talking this morning about agency and structures and with his sort of scientific hat on, he's looking at the structures of the society and the structures yeah. of, of things. Kinship in particular, incredibly complex kinship relationships, mm. yeah. But also, it, um, all stories are a much more complicated thing than that. They, they're about the quirks of individual personalities, mm. um, the quirks of fate about people living and dying. Tell us about a couple of the really crucial characters in this story from the community. Yeah. This is one of the things he's always said, and it's so very true, that you know, anthropologists of necessity put a kind of template over societies, they have to, to, to observe patterns, and categories and these sorts of things. But of course, the Aboriginal society, any society has within it different characters and a certain amount of serendipity. Things just happen. You know, maybe you should think of the Labour Party without Hawke and Keating. But they do have some sort of effect on these things. And in this community, and I'm sure in other communities, the same thing happened. There was a man from Blue Mud Bay called Wongu um, in the 1930s who, I mean, and, and later, who had 23 wives and at least 60 children, Wongu. That has a profound effect everywhere because if he's got 23 wives, there are a lot of young men who haven't got wives and they want wives. So things are going to happen. And he's almost, if he's got 60 children, let's say 30 of them are men, he's got an army. You know, so he's a powerful individual. And he didn't, he didn't just... And he just appears. And he's... So in this community, although certainly the, the anthropological precepts apply, but it's also true that things happen that cause this community to be different to other communities and different to what it would have been had other people lived rather than died and so on. So Neville goes there. There are two old men in particular, Dolatarama and my brain has just gone dead and I can't remember the second one. Um, Byman, Byman. Um, Byman who showed, Byman had yours, this terrible disease, easily curable. Um, but Byman's nose had completely gone. He was a battled on. Um, but Dolatarama and Byman took Neville in basically, and he, they gave him a lot of knowledge, then they both died. And the natural successor was a, a charismatic young man called Yorama, um, who had about him some of the qualities of the early Galaroy Unipinga. Um, but Yorama, to cut it short, died in a helicopter accident, um, which the belt helicopter company put down to engine failure, but the people, of course, put down to something else altogether. They put it down to enemies. And Yularama flying around country that had forgotten him. They predicted it would happen, and it did. Anyway, because Yularama dies, his younger brother, Tom, takes over. And Tom is a much more conservative man, very quiet man, 
very, very traditional, very like Neville in being deeply conservative in, in various ways. He's a Labour voter, but he's a kind of conservative. Um, so, and that changes everything in a way because that means the community is going to stick to um, the old ways and Yilarama probably would have been a more adaptable person. So the deal becomes, we give you the knowledge, you walk the land with us, I'll tell you all these things. In return, you help me, our community, to work with the Western pressures on us. How are we going to deal? How are we going to get stuff brought here? How are, we going to get, how are the kids going to get edu educated and so on? So Neville goes through a crisis after about 25 years of being the anthropologist. He gets PTSD, he gets melanoma, how he lived, we'll never know. Um, and he decides that having been given a second chance, as it were, he'll um, devote himself to building uh, Doenji into a viable community as best he can. And one of the first things he does is bring his old vets that he's re-established contact with up there to work. Uh, the vets' partners are happy to be rid of them for several months of the year. Um, and they go up and stay there and work. And there, there is a sort of method in the madness in that as well. Uh, I mean, it's seen as... It's, it's not just them being great blokes, either, is it? No. Um, it's, it's seen as something that helps them deal with their PTSD? Yeah, absolutely. He finds... I mean, Neville was lift, literally lifted out of the jungle in December 1967 because his time was up, flown back to Australia, taken away from his mates, um, flown back to Australia, dumped at the Watsonia Army base, out of which he walked 18 hours later and went back to Geelong. Life starts again. He was demonstrating against the war on Geelong railway station the following Saturday. That, so, so is this, I mean, it's this really interesting um, connection of two groups. And I'd just like you to read a little bit... Um, from page 210. It's always page 210 in there. Uh, no actually, idea. no, it's not page 210. Uh, I was just tricking you. <laughs> oh, no, it was page 210. <laughs> the second paragraph. That's right. From wherever you think is a good place to start. Can I just say, that it mentions up here, Charlie Howe was one of the soldiers he worked with who, who a, a marvellous man, very different to Neville. None of them are academic or, you know, interested in any of this stuff. They're all... Um, practical, hard-nosed country Australians from northern rivers and southeast Queensland. Um, they all ended up broken. Charlie put it better than anyone I know. He said, what drove him balmy in the end was that this wasn't the way his life was meant to be. It had never been... And, uh, this Pulling the name out means that he can never get these thoughts out of his head the things that happened to him there and how he survived and how other people didn't and so on. So, and that's where it seems to me the cruelty of that system lay. Neville believed it was because they were vets that they threw themselves so resolutely into the work. They were not put off by the grim conditions in which the Jungle lived, their desperately dirty houses, the dire plumbing and sanitation. Their army experience had made them resilient. The army had also taught them what it was like to feel let down by your country. They knew a bit about what it was to not fit. 
They knew what it was like to be dropped into a life you never would have chosen. If the Jungle seemed dysfunctional, they knew what that was like as well. Dave Glyde said it was their awful condition that moved him and the callous neglect and the waste that made him angry. Is that all? Yeah. So um, they all go up there and um, they're, they're not just you know, building houses and putting in septic systems and things like that. A lot of what Neville's trying to do is make the community functional you know, so that it can transition between the two worlds. Um, and some of those... So what they're trying to do is teach people trades and things like that. Maybe mm. just tell us a little bit about, yeah. about that. Well, the, the, it's, it's, it's curious about this. The, the, it was said really early on in the homelands, and, 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 and if you read accounts of um, people like W.H. Rivers in the, um, in the Solomon Islands, where he was before the First World War, they, they say that at the moment these societies are hit with colonialism, the people who find it hardest to adapt are the young men. Men in general, particularly the, young, the younger men, because there are, the women who are bringing 75% of the food traditionally anyway are somehow more able to adapt. They go on gathering. They go on out every day. They bring food in. They endure. Um, it says a lot about our own society too, I think. Um, the young men... A lot's been taken away. If you're not hunting, a lot of your manhood comes from hunting. A lot of your manhood comes from fighting. It comes from war. One of the things that Rivers said was that when the Solomon Islanders stopped fighting, they lost the men just sat there and didn't know what to do with themselves. It's part of the... There's also the, the... He talks about the enjoyment of warfare, I think. Yeah. Mm. And it... Um, there's a thrill involved. You know, men are very peculiar, Laura, as you probably know. <laughs> they don't nothing. need much, but they need it desperately. You know. Um, anyway, you know, they carry around spears. And they've got nothing to throw them at. You know. But um, in any event, what Neville desperately wanted to do was to f find a way to train the men into into the sort of trades that they could practice outside the community, within the community, whatever. So he built a workshop, this beautiful workshop that the vets built with him. Neville couldn't drive a nail, but the vets could. Um, so they built this great workshop. And for six months, they had a trade teacher there. And then he was moved by the department and they were never able to get a trade teacher again. It's now been up there for 20 years um, and they can't get a trade teacher. So this is devastating. And like everything else that fails there, it's devastating both for the community and for Neville because he feels like he's betrayed the community because he's promised them this and it's come to nothing. So he go, you know, it's not good for his general levels of anxiety that he's constantly thinking, I've let them down, I've promised them things that I can't give and so on. This is part of his, of his state of mind constantly. So similarly, he builds a school because... Tom, for all his conservatism, felt that they needed to be educated both in their traditional languages. They needed to know Jungle law, they needed to know um, Jungle ceremonies and songs and all the rest. They still go through initiation ceremonies, the whole thing is still practised. So the school is built. Uh, they, they built the first school and then they shame the Northern Territory Education Department into building a proper school. 
and the teacher is sent. And for, and for a while that goes well, then a teacher arrives, she was there for a long while. We went and to see how these kids were going who'd been benchmarked at having met national standards and everything else and they were illiterate and enumerate. They couldn't read Mickey in the Night Kitchen. Um, now that, I don't want to, um, it was an atrocious betrayal it seemed to me and it, I'd become aware of it a few times that they were really, she was only there three days a week, started late, left early, so you write to the department and say, what the hell's going on? I mean, this is a school. Why don't these kids get five days a week education? With a They built a schoolhouse. All this was possible for um, She had everything you needed. Why, do they only, why, why don't they get five days a week? And, you, and the answer would be, well, they're living in a remote community and, and that's a community education centre, not a school. So you say, hang on. When the Minister for Education opened it, he called it a school. And he got his picture in the Northern Territory Google. So what's going on here? You don't get an answer. All right. And the curriculum they're sending is completely stupid anyway. But the argument about being a remote school, therefore no, there's no compulsion to educate five days a week, nine till four, is, is ludicrous because, if only because, when I was a kid in the Streslicky Ranges in Gippsland, there were schools scattered all through there to provide for the sons and daughters of men and women who decided they didn't want to work in as wage earners, but they wanted to live on a bit of land of their own. And uh, they were entitled, therefore, to a school and a teacher and education that began at nine in the morning and finished at four in the afternoon for five days a week. Mm. And that's all these people were doing too. They were living on land, which they wanted to was their own, and then wanted their kids to get an education, so they never got it. It still staggers along, the school's still there. Um, but, but there's... But the, it, it's, it's one example of lots in the book um, which detail this completely dysfunctional relationship with, let's say, white Australia. Mm. Um, uh, I'll just get you to read a little bit from page 212 about, about contractors. Oh, yeah. Contractors. <laughs> Two years earlier, when, when a toilet was brimming over, I should say a contractor came out, um, it was just before I went there, he, he came out and um, installed a septic tank for many thousands of dollars. And within 12 months, it was spilling over. Oh, I say it here, actually. Don't need to tell you. Two years, earlier, when, uh, two years earlier, when a toilet was brimming over, Neville rang the health department and asked if the contractor who was then building Tom's house could be authorised to fill in the overflowing hole and dig a new one with his big tractor and it's earth-moving implements. A contractor had installed a septic tank three years earlier, but the tank turned out to be a 44-gallon drum cut in half. The same contractor laid some pipes but never came back to fill in the trench. He quoted $14,000 to lay a pipe to the workshop. Three veterans bought the pipe in Nullenboy for a few hundred dollars and laid it in half a day. The health department said that the hole was the responsibility of the Homeland Service provider, Martha Carl. Neville phoned Marta Carl on Elko Island, but they said the hole was not their job. The Education Department should dig it. It was no surprise when the Education Department denied responsibility. The visiting health solutions broker <laughs> from the Indigenous Coordination Council, who had advised Neville to ring the health department, said on second thoughts he should contact a person whose name and address he wrote on a piece of paper before driving away in his new land cruiser. 
Neville at last rang the regional council at Gapwiak and their person said, go ahead and tell the man to bury the overflow and fill in the existing hole and dig a new one. It took the contractor half an hour. It had taken Neville many months. That's the sort of thing. There were some amazing follies, Soviet-style follies, really. You know, only the Russians could dream it up. Mm. Um, when the workshop was opened, a man flew out from Darwin, would have cost about $1,500, and said, you can't use this workshop. It's about as wide as this room. You could drive five Toyotas through it and opened at the back and the front and he said, they said, why can't we use it? And he said, you haven't got any illuminated exit signs. <laughs> it's not safe. So the vets drove into Nullanboy, four and a half hours there, four and a half backs, put up some illuminated exit signs. The man flew out in a few months and said, oh, well, you can open it now. You've got the illuminated exit signs. It cost about $25. A week later, the kids had thrown mangoes through them and smashed them, but it didn't <laughs> Who needed bloody illuminated exit signs? So... Um Coming back to the school, I mean, there are this really interesting character. I mean, there's an element of the Shakespearean in a lot of the characters, going back to the earlier point about, you know, the randomness of people dying and, mm. and the qualities of um, uh, and skills of the various people within the community. Um, and I want to talk about a couple of the blokes later, but one of the really standout characters to me is Joanne. Yeah. Um, and... Um, if, if you'll indulge me, um, uh, I'd like you to read a little bit more about this because it's on a similar theme, but um, he's this really interesting young woman who wants to be a school teacher and just, just they just sort of keep throwing these hurdles where she can't get qualified. Um, and um, I wondered if you could just read a little bit from page 250 um, where... Um, uh, from Neville complained to the college. Neville, Neville complained, yes. Joanne was um, she's a marvellous young woman. Still hasn't been able to qualify as... She's the assistant teacher. She keeps the community going, basically, Joanne. Um, and it, it is interesting how the weight of um, power and influence and responsibility in the community has shifted in the time I've been going there to the women, much like it did in Central Australia, I think. And um, the men just come and go, find it too hard. The women, they persist. Joanne's classic case. Neville complained to the, the college and the department that they seemed determined to crush her spirit and self-esteem. An education department official came to the homeland one day. The adults told him they wanted the kids to go to Doinji School, not Kapawiak. One woman said, tapping her chest, it hurts me inside. I want the young people to come back here. Capable and willing as she was, for now Joanne had neither the training nor the confidence to carry the burden. The Shepherdson College, they were arrangements placed on a part of the burden, surely was denying the reality of life at Doingy. The school was to pursue abstract and nonsensical national benchmarks and pursue them through a curriculum and language that defied understanding among English speakers much less people for whom English was a third or fourth language. The Northern Territory Indigenous Education Strategic Plan Action Wheel <laughs> would allow schools to prioritise the actions and outcomes according to the needs of its clients or the specifics of its context. Now, you try and tell me what I just said, you know, <laughs> and, and try to imagine a woman for whom English is about a fourth language 
in a community where very few people speak English, trying to make sense of that. And that's the language in which it's written. Furthermore, depending on what the issue is, which outcome is most important, that explains the word issue, it is possible to align the outcome against any of six action areas to develop specialised and localised activities that will address that outcome. At the end of the day, we found Joanne on the school steps with tears in her eyes. I mean, it's staggering, really. Um, so there's all of that unbelievable and inexplicable, to most people, frustration of dealing with all of that shit. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is the also sort of inexplicable and, uh, and uh, incomprehensible sort of self-destructive element within the community itself. Now, um, I was thinking about maybe just telling us about two characters in the story in particular um, as an illustration of that, and that's Christopher and Ricky. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're interesting, um, to say the least. Um, there's Tom... And then Tom's the, the, the youngest of the Rotunga men is Christopher. And Tom was a man great, took his responsibilities terribly seriously, not without a certain amount of self-interest there. I mean, that he's recognised where his power lay and he wanted to keep it. But he's, he's, there was a great genuineness about her, Tom, Christopher had, had, had become an evangelical at one point um, and kept that to some extent. Um, Christopher, one of the vets said Christopher was the most, the most selfish man he'd ever met in his life. Um, but that's in the context of a man who's been cut off from his culture. It has to be taken with a grain of salt. But... Christopher, Christopher had great... He, he, he would do things which were incredibly self-destructive or destructive of the community. I mean, he, he, was, a, he was a chancer. And in another context, I always thought he could have been a Che Guevara. He could have been you know, the, the man who took up arms. But in this context, he was destructive. And, and in, but it's, it's, it's more useful to, to think of Christopher as, as, as the kind of problem more generally, I think, that it's, it's a massive thing to make the switch and you, people have to find their way through it one way or another. And Christopher chose to find his way through it through the church at one point and through people of influence and power and he didn't always seem to have the interests of Doenji necessarily at, um, as his main objective. Ricky is a, a younger generation. He comes from the Wagalak mob. He's not a, um, which means he's not an owner, and therefore his 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 influence is less. Ricky is incredibly capable and a charismatic man, um, a brilliant bush mechanic who wanted nothing in life so much as to become a qualified and good mechanic. When the tractor we got for them arrived, it was in the last journey, the last kilometre of its three and a half thousand mile journey from Melbourne. They went down a hole and it went through the pallet it was sitting on and broke something inside it and it arrived in a pool of oil and 
Anyway, I took up some spare parts that I'd bought and I went over in the morning and Ricky had the back wheel off of this tractor and there were bits of tractor in the dust everywhere and he was sharpening a wooden stake. And like an idiot, I said, Ricky, what are you going to do with that stake? Thinking you're going to put it in the axle, aren't you? You're going to... And I said, you can't put a bit of wood in a tractor. And he told me to piss off in the end. And next thing, when I came back, the tractor's working fine. And I find to my great relief the wood is lying on the ground um, that he hasn't got. And of course, he was using it to steady the thing so that he could get all the bits attached. Anyway, he was a, 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 a wonderful man. Fully, you know, wanted to maintain all the knowledge. He wanted to be the doingy man in a sense that, you know, he would have, he would have adapted, have a, be able to fix vehicles for other things, charge for them, get some money in. Uh, a house had been built for him. Pass on clenosis. But he was denied by, because no one ever came for, to the workshop to train him as a mechanic and because he wasn't. Traditionally, he didn't have the power that he needed to get to change Doingy. He gets caught right in the middle. And in the end, Ricky can't stand it anymore. And Ricky ends up in the long grass where he still is in Catherine. Um, it's, the, it's the saddest story I know personally, I think, and typical. And it, it, in, in this sense, that if you, if people who end up in the long grass or wandering, staggering in the streets of Darwin or Catherine or else, have been, ca been caught in this claim. They've made decisions which have not been helpful to them, but, they've, but I, I think that's when you have to make the switch and say, would I survive through this? I wouldn't. I would have drunk myself to death much sooner. Ricky's there, and, and I think of him as... I last saw him in 2019. We went up to try and beat a jail sentence that he was facing for driving a vehicle that wasn't registered and he didn't have a licence. And he did, they let him up. <clears throat> but I, I think of him as, well, you know, you, we see these people, you go to these places, you see these people staggering and you, and you have to recognise that they do have a story, you know, it didn't just, they didn't, they weren't just dropped there. And the story's not just a story of colonialism and white bureaucracy and stupidity and criminal neglect and all that. It's also a story of the dysfunction of traditional society. I mean, he's there in part because the old men at Doinji didn't, couldn't see a way through for him, you know, to give him the sort of power he needed. And there's a moment in the book when Tom dies and there's a funeral and Ricky loses it completely and appears at night shouting and screaming and Neville freaks out and it's a terrible moment um, and that's when Ricky's really come off the rails but um, he, he, look, oh, he, he, was, he had an amazing charm about him and it's a, it's a terrible tale but I think it's indicative of a much broader problem we face So um, there are these profoundly uh, depressing and tragic elements of the book and there's one really long section where Neville's despairing and you know he goes back uh, up there a few times and finds you know the, the, all the tools have been stolen and mm. the place has been trashed uh, as and it's not just self-destructive but there's all of this these tensions going on there's this really interesting character called Cowboy who yeah 
who sort of just sits on the veranda and freaks everybody out a lot. Um, yeah, Cowboy's interesting because Cowboy is a, Cowboy's my brother, he's Rotungu, but he comes from down the south of the Mitchell Ranges and his, his clan went into the cattle stations. So Cowboy's raised in the cattle and you can see he's, he's a different body shape. He's, he's eaten a lot more carbohydrate. He's, um, he's a different man and he, he's, a, he's a reformer. He wants to turn Doenji into a cattle station which they're utterly opposed to. But he's come back to claim his sort of ceremonial links to the land. And his way of doing it was just to sit there and freak them out, just psych them out. So I first met Tom, he was in Nullanboy having a rest from Cowboy because he was psyched out. <laughs> Had enough of him. He just sits there with his two wives and his rifles and his spears by him. And he stayed there for three or four years um, uh, trying to wear them out. Um, in the end, it comes to nothing. But he's he's an interesting example of the of what Dwenji could have gone that way. But they had they had actually when they set it up, they had all voted that it wouldn't become a cattle station. They would dirty the country. They couldn't. It was inconsistent with their traditional life. So that they'd made a, a, a quite explicitly decided that they didn't want that. And they never arranged a meeting there and set it up so that cowboy was comprehensively outvoted. Mm. Only his wives voted for him. Um, but it was powerful symbolism. So um, it goes on. I mean, completely unfair question, but I mean, having sort of experienced it in its highs and lows, I mean, do you have any sort of sense of that there's a, there's, there is a path through all of this? that particular community? Um, no, I don't think, it's, I don't think a path, path is really discernible. I mean, Neville would say sometimes, I don't, you know, what the hell have I done? When um, you say, well, look, what you've done is you've kept two generations going. The language is still alive. The, the traditional life is still alive. And uh, there's never been a suicide at Doenji unlike many other places, there's never been violence, of, you know, serious violence of any kind. No one's ever been seriously injured. Um, they are remarkably um, gentle people. People say that about the Doenji kids and everything else. They're not... They're, they're, they're somehow there's a sort of contentedness in the place, even when, the, even when there's squabbling going on. It'll always be a sort of refuge. It, it, it still has the potential to revivify. The school still goes. Um, there's been a shift in the power. A, a, a clan that had ceremonial links called the um, Jumpapingu now basically are the powerful clan. There are no Rotangu men left. Um, and I think the last Rotangu woman died as well. So that whole... Um, Clan is basically gone. I think that the, if I don't think that uh, we should drop the word solution. The idea. I mean, I met a solutions broker in Dunboy in an air conditioner. I, I mean, it was just tragic. But I think generally there aren't solutions. You know, there are things that you can do which are sensible and practicable um, that help people in their day-to-day -day needs. The, the application of just common sense and care would make a huge difference to these places. 
Um, I think the idea that, that by some policy move or by, this will fix it, doesn't it? Mm. But if people had just simply done the work for which they were paid, it would have made a vast difference to this place. It, would not, it wouldn't have meant that the place was utopia, but it would have meant that people had better lives, easier lives. If it had, there is no one in Northeast Arnhem Land, as of three years ago, it may have changed, but there is no mental health worker in Northeast Arnhem Land for a huge number of people who have, particularly on the, among the men, who have mental health problems, largely called, caused by substance abuse in the hub town. But there's no one there. There were no dentists there, although I met a dentist this morning. He said he'd been there for 10 years. Um, um, but there's no, their dental health is atrocious. It shouldn't be. There's, there's, there are a whole lot of services that simply aren't provided or, sh or are provided, but never actually reach the people. What will happen when Neville stops going there? I think that's the question he asked himself all the time. I think it torments him. He's going there next week, actually. Um, a lot that he's done will keep going. There's a ranger program there, so a lot of the men now are employed um, in looking after the, the land. Um, but he gives them advice because he's reached a point, it's now reached a point where he actually knows the land better because he walked it all with Tom and Bill Trama and people. And they asked him where to go. He knows the burning regimes, how they should work. Um, it is a bit of an indication, even the time I've been going there, how, how quickly knowledge is lost, the essential knowledge, once you're separated from the land. Um, at the same time, you, you could be stunned by how much they knew about it. So the ceremonies continue. The f to give it, um, in one sense, the, the, the business of funerals is a kind of indicator of, of, of the central dilemma. Funerals are, it's largely through funerals, as far as I can tell, that the ceremonial knowledge and the law and the relationships between the clans is maintained because it's at the funerals that the songs are sung and the ceremonies are conducted, and the, including the circumcision ceremonies and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's largely through funerals that obligations are met each time going. But it's also through funerals that the practice of education is made difficult because kids are out of school for a long while or kids are brought from the clan that's going to the funeral to this homeland and food's not provided so they've got to somehow battle their way through. So everywhere you look, you just see these, these little things that need to somehow be worked which out and they represent much larger things about how long the thing can keep going and the transition will be slow, 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 slow. But no solutions. Forget about the idea that by the click of, a fingers you, of your fingers you can make this change. By the click of your fingers you can actually drive out there and fix something. Um, that would be great. At, at that sort of level, this is a story about personalities and um, an agency, is a terrible word, but, um, but if, if Neville's not there at that really basic level, is a really important part of what happens to that community, whether somebody in the community can have learnt enough to be able to operate 
in, yeah. in, in uh, the way that Neville has operated? It depends very much on... on it, it, it will depend enormously on whether a, a man will devote himself to it. The, the women, it seems, will go on. But the, the, to keep the thing really functional, well, it needs a young man who's going to take on the responsibility that was exercised previously. And that may happen. Um, again, it's that sort of it's that serendipitous thing of uh, who, who, who will take it on, who will have the qualities that are necessary um, to do it. There, there, are, there are reasons for hope, but uh, optimism would probably be misplaced. But then I think optimism is generally misplaced. Um, um, I, you know, uh, if it stopped tomorrow, it seems to me it would have been a massively worthwhile project. If it keeps going, we can't say how it'll turn out. It'll be a ceremony, it'll be a site for ceremonies, it'll be a site for... If the school can be kept going, it'll, that'll be useful. But and it will always be a kind of refuge. At the same time, it'll be this strange place out in the middle of nowhere um, that looks like a, a little village with its mango trees and its shady patches and its, you know, 20 odd houses and its school and its workshop. People have drifted away from there though, haven't they? Yeah, you know, people have always drifted away from it and come back and drift away. The men mainly. Um, the food supply is one of the problems. I mean, they, after all this time, he's, they've never been able to find a way of getting someone to drive out every week or fortnight with basic food from the store because the hunting and gathering was always dodgy and you walked... You know, you had to keep moving to keep up with the seasonal supply of food. So staying in one place sort of obviates that. So they do need, and in any case, they're, they've, they've developed a dependence on flour and sugar and wheat bix and God knows what. Um, but the fact that we've, they've never been able to, despite many, many efforts, get the store in Gubbleweak to sort of take food out there as part of their remit, is astonishing. Um, well, I suppose finally, what about the vets? I mean, were they, as opposed to Neville, were they ultimately despondent about what they experienced? Did, did it actually help them? I think it did. I mean, I've spoken to pretty well all of them and become friendly with quite a few of them. Um, one of them lives quite near me, and um, their attitude is, I mean, they, what strikes me most about them is how well they remember each character there that they worked with. And when they were there, I mean, it was just like a hive. I mean, there were blokes doing all sorts of work, and they loved the work. It's having nothing to do, which is such a, you know, so hard. So that was all good. You know, they, they they were not cynical, but they would say, you know, you know, they don't seem to help themselves much, and so on. But I think they felt the work was both, you know, was a good thing to do with their lives, and that, in fact, I think they found their lives unimaginable without it, and they they certainly found it useful in dealing with their own problems. You know, I think they had great sympathy for the people. 
it's, you know, it, it was, I think, one of the better things that had happened to them. Um, well, so, I, you know, by and large, I think... I mean, the, the thing I actually wanted to say about the vets is that, I, I mean, I'd never, it had never occurred to me just how, what the bond is like between, we know this, but seeing it up close is interesting. You know, the bond between them is extraordinary. The, the kind of, the love between them is amazing. I think also they were, they had, they were very welcome at Doenji because they were soldiers. Mm. I, this is something I lacked, along with practical skills. I hadn't been a soldier, so I think I, you know, it was hard to sort of establish much respect. Actually, Some sort of hanger on. <laughs> well, that's uh, just, uh, I did say finally, but actually finally, um, you, you're writing about a lot of damaged people amongst the vets and about this, you know, community and all its internal politics. And uh, how, how difficult is that to be a biographer of those things? Um. Well, they were so they were such they were so willing. I mean, I'm sure if it, this was subjected to sort of a Janet Malcolm analysis, I'd probably find myself in strife. But they were such willing talkers, and and were grateful for the chance to talk in much the same way as I think the the old men were willing to talk to Neville. I I never felt I felt constrained to make sure that I got it right and that, uh, as best I could and. You can never get it absolutely right when you're writing about somebody else, but you do your best. And they've all read it, and they've all. This is my, to my great relief. They've all been. They've all been in touch and said we think it's good, and that was a. That pleases me. Um, I, some of them came to a session in Brisbane, and there were half a dozen of them there. And I said, I love this moment. I said, well. I, some of them are here tonight, I said, and um, I won't ask them to stand up because they'd be embarrassed. And one of them shot up and said, be buggered. <laughs> <laughs> and then they all stood up. <laughs> uh, well, they certainly don't have any reason to be embarrassed. And um, it is a brilliant book. So thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.